Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the Rising Tide Mastermind. The Rising Tide Mastermind is one of my favorite things that I look forward to each and every week because I get to see people that have my best interest in mind. I know this because I have their best interest in mind. And when you get people together in a room like that, you can just imagine how people want to help other people. If this sounds like something you want to learn more about, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind. Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. My name is Trace Blackmore, your host for Scaling Up H2O. And Nation, this is going to be a fun episode. I know a lot of you know about the industries that we try to promote in the industrial water treatment world, specifically the nonprofit agencies that put together conferences that allow us to learn more in a very easy way while we're meeting new people. And by the way, those people can now help us continue our learning journey. Well, we're going to meet somebody that is involved in another organization that we've talked about in the past, and we want to make sure that you are in the know about the International Water Conference. So that is to come. That's the interview that we are going to have here today. But before I get started, I wanted to thank everybody who replied to my call of action last week. And that was to sign up for the Global 6K that's taking place on May 20th. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can get all that information by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash 6K, or you can listen to last week's episode. And of course, the Global 6K is all about how do we bring attention to the global water crisis. Now, what's the global water crisis? People don't have water to drink on a global scale. And we are very lucky in the majority of the places that this podcast has listeners. We can simply turn on the faucet And nice, cool, clean drinking water comes out of the faucet, and we didn't have to walk but a couple of feet to get that. Well, that's not the case for billions, and I said billions with a B, people in the world where they have to walk six kilometers on average to get the water that they are going to drink. And trust me, It does not look anything like the water that is coming out of your faucet. So with that, I want you to make sure that you understand this, that you are celebrating the industry that we are in, and you are letting other people know that we coming together can actually solve the global water problem. Crisis. Now, one of the things you can do to bring awareness is on May 20th, you can sign up for the Global 6K. And this is the easiest 6K that you will ever do because it's not about the time that you get in the race. It is about the information that you are sharing as a member of this event. So as I mentioned before, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash 6K. We'll have all the information that you need on that page. You can join Team Scaling Up or you can create your own team. But Nation, I urge you, this is my call to action. This is my plea because you are going to get so much out of doing this. It's going to be a Saturday and I promise the weather is going to be awesome wherever it is that you are. And you're going to register. It'll cost you $50. And by the way, that $50 is enough to bring clean water right to where somebody is. So one person gets drinking water for $50. That's just amazing. I think it's amazing what World Vision does. 
that is one of the things that they do. And on that Saturday uh, or on the Saturday prior, hopefully a couple weeks prior, you will receive a racing t-shirt, a medal, and then also a bib with the child that you are sponsoring. This is the child that you have brought clean drinking water to and you've now kept them in school because they are not walking six kilometers to go get water that nobody would really want to drink if they had a choice. And now you're going to go walk, run, crawl, whatever you want to do for the next six kilometers. And I guarantee if you go to a place where there are other people, they are going to stop you and they're going to ask you what you are doing. And this is your opportunity to tell them exactly what and why you were in this 6K. And I promise somebody will think about water differently. Somebody will also think about what they can do to help everybody solve the global water crisis. So we can all do this together. And we can all have a lot of fun while doing this. As a company owner, as a team leader, I love getting the team involved in the Global 6K because now we're able to celebrate together that we are in this industry. It's all around water. We are probably the biggest savers of water when you look at what we do as industrial water treaters. So celebrate that. We are actually making sure that we're using that valuable resource to its fullest capability before we waste it. And a lot of us even have some input in how that water is cleaned up so it can be recycled. So this just allows us to get together as a team and celebrate being in this industry. And an extra bonus is we're going to bring clean drinking water for every single person that signs up for that 6K. And how awesome is that? One more time, scalinguph2o.com forward slash 6K. Well, Nation, one of the things that I love to do is learn. And a gentleman that helps us out each and every week is James McDonald. Hello and welcome to the Periodic Water Table with James, where we think and learn about water chemistry drop by drop. Please use your week to search online, ask your colleagues, or even pick up a book to learn more about each week's periodic water table topic. If you do, at the end of the year, you'll be 52 water chemistry smarter. So let's raise the water table of knowledge together and get started. Today's topic is... Sulfite. Aside from sodium sulfite, what are the other forms of sulfite used in industrial water treatment? What are their chemical formulas? What are some advantages of using one form over another? If used in boilers, what pressures can sulfites be used or not used? Why? How do you test for sulfite? What may interfere with a sulfite test? Does age of the water sample matter when testing? Does how vigorously you stir the sample matter? How accurate is the sulfite test? Have you ever tried running the sulfite test on sulfite-free water just to see what it might show? In what unit of measure is the sulfite test result expressed? How quickly does sulfite react? Is a catalyst ever used to speed the reaction? If yes, which catalyst? Can this catalyst ever cause issues itself? How should one control the feed of a sulfite-based product? Are sulfites ever fed ahead of pretreatment, such as an RO? Why? Can the speed and stroke settings impact the effectiveness of such a feed? Remember, knowledge is power, and taking the time to learn more about water chemistry each week will help make you a force to be reckoned with. Be sure to post what you learn to social media and tag it with hashtag watertable23 and hashtag scalinguph2o. I look forward to learning more from you. Thank you, James. Well, Nation, I told you what we were going to be talking about at this point in the episode. So here it is. Here's the interview. My lab partner is Michael Solar of Bowen. Mike, welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Thanks, Trace. So I understand you're a long-term listener of the show now. <laughs> I am. 
there there are a lot of different topics covered on this podcast. And in the travel I do, it, it is enjoyable and rewarding to listen. I'm not kidding. It's just a lot of fun. Well, that is awesome. I can't wait to talk with you and introduce you to the Scaling Up Nation. Uh, you can probably do that better than I can. What does the Scaling Up Nation need to know about Mike? Who is Mike? Well, Mike Solar is an engineer who has got a passion for business. I'm the Vice President of Business Development for Bowen, and my role is to develop our what we call private water wastewater treatment projects, and that's effectively any project that's not a municipal, and we have a great team that does municipal work. If someone would like to know more about me, they would understand that uh, I come from a big family. I have uh, seven brothers and sisters, and I, uh, I got into the engineering world because four of my brothers are engineers as well, and I've been blessed to work around vertical construction such as prisons, to a chemical research facility where we could blow off the side of the building and not tear up the inside. Big box retail uh, account for 17 years, worked in the telecom business, but I started in this business in the water business. And then in 2007, I got back into the water business with Bowen and I just have a lot of fun. That's me. We are definitely in one of the greatest industries in the world, I would say. No question. People say, well, wh what does Bowen do? And I said, well, think about it this way. If you drink it, you flush it, or you turn it on, we do it. That's what we do. We're a water, wastewater, power, and industrial company. And this business, golly, all you have to do is read any newspaper or a pod or anything to, to understand that our populations are growing around the world and we have a finite amount of H2O. That's it. So you and I were speaking before we started recording the podcast, and we have been to the same place. I'm trying to remember the town in Ohio was, but I'm speaking of the Ohio Reformatorium. And uh, if, if you listeners out there have no idea what I'm talking about, you probably know this prison. You just don't know you know it. It was the prison that they featured in the Shawshank Redemption. And I got to spend an afternoon there. My wife saw it. One of my favorite books, one of my favorite movies. And we got to see all of the place that, of course, Andy spent so many years trying to plan his escape. Even saw the pipe that they mocked up for him to escape in. And uh, got a picture behind the warden's desk. But you did a lot more when it came to that prison. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, Rob Reiner in Castle Rock put that uh, film on. And golly, this is the previous century, Trace. This is back in the 80s, uh, 1980s, that I built the replacement, and it's in Mansfield, Ohio, and the replacement prison that replaced the Mansfield Correctional Institution, that reformatory. And it was a real place. And those scenes in that movie are the real locations. The hole that Andy Dufresne was put in, I saw it. The walk around the wall, those big stone walls and dropping the, the gravel, it was real. It was absolutely, utterly real. And the thing that tipped me off the most, and it really resonates with me, is the last scene of that movie. Because at that point in time, in the last scene of that movie, they show a pauper's graveyard looking up toward the wall. And that was real, and it is real. That is, and it's right next to the railroad track. So fascinating place and also an awe-inspiring place because of the construction that it took to build what was there, much less the new stuff that we built. It was just a, an amazing. <laughs> so every time I get to see that movie, I go, oh, that's a good memory. You were actually there for not quite a decade building the prison that replaced the reformatorium. Is that correct? Well, I, we've got our stories a little mixed up. It was about four years, actually. Okay. Yeah. The Ohio Bureau of Prisons took a decade and they built a lot of different prisons over the state of Ohio in that period of time, the 80s and early 90s. But uh, yes, this one was a four-year event and it was a, a very large facility. They had maximum housing, eight buildings, close custody housing, three buildings, and a big administration and industrial 
building. One of the things that the you know, state of Ohio was doing at that time was really trying to have the folks that were incarcerated learn something that they could do because they would be getting out of prison. And what is a trade? What is a craft? What is a, something that they can rejoin society? And so all of those elements came to part as part of the Ohio Correctional Facility. And what you built was, I guess, beautiful in its own right. But when you compare it to the building it replaced, very different design. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. The original design was much more uh, Victorian. I may have explained this to you. If you watch that movie close enough toward the end, when you see they see the warden and the, the police are coming in and they zoom right in on the door handle, the seal of the state of Ohio is on that doorknob. And that's how it was throughout the, the original. And then there, there part where the, uh, the facility we built was out of precast. And at the time, that was a relatively new material. Uh, it was called sandwich wide precast, where he had an architectural finish on one side, then an insulation, and then some nylon tabs, and then it goes into the concrete. But uh, it was all built in a, in a very different way and, than what the original prison was, yeah. Yeah, I remember the tour went into the architect and had a lot of great information about him. I don't remember a lot about that, but I do remember them stating that the state of Ohio and the architect believed that if the inmates were in a place that was beautiful, that they could respect, that that would help their reform. I'm guessing along the line, they did away with that type of thinking. Well, to a degree, one of the one of the biggest differences between the original prison and the new prison was the amount of recreational space. And so when you look at modern day movies, you'll see these large rooms where the folks can gather and then all of the housing units, the, the cells are up on mezzanines and they look over. So that's a lot different than the original, which was what you see in that movie, a hallway and uh, cat calls and and a lot different. And then the outside area in the new prisons had the same types of exercise equipment, you know, weightlifting and basketball hoops and so on, soccer, those kind of things. But it's a prison. Let's not mistake it. This is a, it's, <laughs> it's not a vacation it's, it's, spot. It is not a vacation spot. No. Well, let's switch gears just a little bit and uh, let's talk about the International Water Conference. How are you involved with the IWC? I'm on the executive committee for the IWC, and, and that's 21 folks who lead the conference from an executive, where are we going, how are we going to get there? And we really rely upon our advisory committee members, which are, we've got 60 advisory committee members and welcome more because the advisory committee really helps set the direction and what is going on with the conference because let me explain to you what, what the conference is about. It's, it's a technical conference, and it's focused on industrial water treatment. And really, it's focused on the expertise and emerging issues associated with water treatment. There are lots of really positive conferences. WEF does a great job, AWWA jobs, equipment conferences. But what the International Water Conference focuses on is the expertise associated with tough-to-treat waters. And a lot of them are industrial. And so my role in that is as a constructor. So I'm not a consultant, uh, engineering consultant. I'm not an owner user, but I'm a constructor, an EPC. Bowen is an EPC and design builder. And what we bring to this is what happens once it's designed? How do we put it in place? And so that's the lens through which I, I look at it in our team. We send eight folks each year to this conference because I get all fired up to talk about it because these are the smartest folks on the earth about water. And if they don't know the answers to the questions, they will find someone who can give the answers to the questions. And what we focus on is with the technical content and the expertise, we work on the networking because we all know in this business, there's not a person who does everything themselves. We rely upon each other. It's about the people and the product. And so my role in the conference as the executive committee member and past general chairs is to bring folks to the conference who want to display and discuss and present true technical papers, data analysis, 
with citations and so on, prior work, and allow them to stand up and talk about the product, the results, not the commercialization. We're not a conference that's focused on a commercial product presentation. In fact, we discourage that because what we understand, what we believe in our hearts is whether you've been in the business five years, six months, 45 years, you have something to bring to this conference and you have something that you can learn from this conference. So come with that receiving attitude and that giving attitude. And oh my gosh, it is, it is really a lot of fun. There's a thousand to 1200 people that come to this conference every year. And we move it around from Orlando to San Antonio. We've had one several out at uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. So that's what makes it a lot of fun. Oh, I was going to ask you, I've been to several international water conferences, and they're very different in how the papers are presented. In fact, I believe there's three people on the panel. And if you haven't seen that, or if you haven't presented that way, it can be a little intimidating. I know you know a lot about that. Can you share with our audience if they wanted to present a paper at IWC, what they could expect? So here's the format. Here's how the format works, folks. A person or a group of folks will write a technical paper, and that true technical paper will have scientific data in it with analysis, recommendations, and even you know future work, just like a a true technical paper would be presented if you were doing a, a short form master's program or, or trying to write a journal article. That's the mission because what makes this conference different is that paper will be sent to what is called a discusser. This is a person who's practiced in a similar art, whether it's RO, ion exchange, FGD water, recycle, electronics, micronutrient water, hard to treat, whatever it is, because of who we work with, we have folks who can read that paper and they have a mission. Their mission is to describe any gaps or maybe stretches of interpretation of the data, talk about what wasn't presented in the paper, such as how this product or this process could be used in a different application, challenge some of the cost numbers that might be put into the paper, but effectively in front of the audience, at, right after the author presents their paper with the PowerPoint, the discusser stands up and says, I read it and here's what I saw. Here's what I read. Here's what I understood. And here's what I didn't understand. So within that perspective, the audience can generate their own questions because they may have had the same question. Now, the author's given an opportunity to respond to the discusser. So it's not a, a prosecutorial interrogation. It's, you said one thing, great. We saw something else. Would you like to give us a short reply? Great. Then we turn it over to the audience for questions and answers. And that is a key component. So it becomes a dialogue type of a presentation more than a 30-minute stand-up, push it out, accept it the way it is, no questions. And that's what creates the energy for the conference. I have to say it was probably one of the best formats that I've seen for papers. It really makes sure that the presenter is presenting what they need to present. I did see one where it did become a little heated and there was another individual there uh, and I believe he was just there to make sure that everybody was staying above board. They weren't insulting anybody. Is that an official position on that panel? It is. Yes, there are three positions, what we call session management roles. The first one is the session chair. And that is the person who reviews the author's papers, provides technical comments, generally there have some deeper experience with regard to the subject matter. There are 72 papers. I don't know if you realize there are 72 papers that are presented in two and a half days. Wow. So it's, uh, it's a really neat, a lot of content. But session chair, the discussion leader. So again, maintaining timing, maintaining consistency for what they said, that they don't ad lib something that they didn't write down. We want to know what's being said because it is a professional conference. We encourage questions. We don't encourage conflict. And so the third person is the executive committee 
whose person who's responsible for that session and say my role, produce water, whatever it may be. And they are the referee. You can challenge professionally. You can ask this question. And we do. We have folks that are interested in each other's comments. But when it starts to cross the line by tone or by question, that's where we stop in and say, you know, folks, what is the real question? Ask it in a professional manner so that you can receive a professional response. Because what are we here for? Education and dialogue. And quite frankly, hopefully what you saw was that was the approach that was taken in in that session that you saw. And and yes, some people do get prickly when they're questioned about their information. What we ask and what we coach, we even have videos on our International Water Conference website on how to write a proper abstract, how to make a proper presentation. What we encourage folks to do is to start with, I'll get back with you. If we don't know the answer, you know, we encourage them to not muddle through, just say, I'm not sure yet, I'll get back with you. And use that pause methodology to take the little bit of steam out of the room if we get to there. Other times, it gets to be a pretty fun affair when you have competing views and someone has a different life's experience. Okay, they had a different data set. Congratulations. Yeah, I will say that I saw one that was fairly heated. Actually, I've seen a couple like that. But I will say at every single occasion, somebody has stepped in from the executive committee and they've said, okay, let's handle something this way. And immediately they did. So you all definitely have a formula that works. And I have seen so many presentations where I'll think I have my mind made up on the presentation and then the other person will get in they will deliver their opposing view or some more data. And not only does it clarify what I thought I already learned, it creates a lot more questions. And I think the IWC has some of the most robust questions out of any conference I have ever attended because of that. That's good to hear. Good to hear. I would want your uh, listeners in the nation to understand that what we're talking about are the anomaly conditions. Out of the <laughs> 72 papers, we might have we might have two or three because two individuals know each other very, very well, and they just love to stir it up. But I would just encourage everyone to submit. If they've got an idea, if they have an outcome, or if they're working through a process and they've got some interesting data, and maybe it's not perfected, present it. Write that abstract and say, here's what we're doing. Here's where we thought we were headed. So far, our hypotheses have turned up certain sets of information, and we're continuing to work on it. And we have first-time authors who do that quite a lot because Let's, you know, whether it's recycled water or whether it's PFOS. We've been doing PFOS as an example. We've been doing a PFOS program. We've had four papers for the last, uh, this will be the fourth year, might be even the fifth year, where we've had strong technical papers about what is it? How do you deal with it? What are the levels of removal? Can you really destroy it? All kinds of interesting subject matters. And some of them have been presented by early career first-time authors who really, quite frankly, when they step off the podium and they say, wow, that was fun. If I could, let me tell you a, a short version of a story about a fellow who wrote a paper with me. He was a project engineer for us, and we built a, a power plant and had a, a conversion from coal to gas. And we had a lot of all the water change out. Great. He was on the project. Well, I helped with the development of the project and did some front-end engineering role it turned out this young man went to school with my son at the Rose Home Institute of Technology. Now, I'm not a spring chicken. I know this is a radio show, a podcast, but it was fun because I asked Ben, is his name, I said, Ben, would you like to write this paper? Because we, meaning you and our field teams, did an incredible job, hit the schedule, nailed the chemistry, got it built right. And he goes, I've never done that. I said, that's fine. When he finished writing the paper, and then stood up in front of a room of probably 60 folks, had someone challenge his paper, his response after that was, oh, that was easy. Those were easy questions. And I said, Ben, it's because you lived it. You were the first person to do it. You knew exactly what that person was talking about. And there was no hesitation in your voice because you had lived it. And 
he had never presented at a professional conference like that. And here he was three years out of school. So that's the kind of fun that we have. That's a great story. And I am sure that there are other Ben's out there listening. And it's so intimidated. One, that we told some of the stories that we did. Uh, so, and you're right. You're, and I had no idea you guys did that many papers at a conference. That is just amazing. We're going to talk about that in a second. But you're right. What we just mentioned was an anomaly, but I'm sure that's what every potential presenter is thinking is going to happen. They're also thinking, oh, I've never presented at a professional conference. If there's a bin out there right now and they're thinking, how do I get started? What's step one with even starting an abstract and becoming a presenter at the International Water Conference? Step one is to go to the abstract and submission link, which I believe will be in the show notes. And if you go to the eswp.com slash water, that'll take you right to the water conference. And there's a section for submitting abstracts. And there's a whole guide, a document that says, here's what a great abstract would include. Here's what it looks like. And then there's a video about how to write a good one. So not only can you read it on paper, it follows the APA for American Psychological Association format, but then you get to hear someone explain to you what really triggers people to say, boy, that's a really interesting concept or that's an interesting idea. I'd like to hear more about it, which is what an abstract is. You've got to grab someone's attention to talk, to have them say, tell me more about this interesting subject and give me the data that goes and backs it up. So that's the first step. And the second step is my contact, if you've got my contact information, put them on the show notes and have them reach out to me via email or via cell phone. That's fine because most likely they know somebody that I know or we won't be more than two or three away from that connection and we can explain how straightforward it is. And you don't have to write the paper as part of the abstract. You have to put an idea out there and then organize the thoughts and that's the first step to getting involved in being an author. What is the selection process once you have abstracts submitted? Great question. So those abstracts come in to the executive committee and the 21 of us review those abstracts and we get 120, 150 abstracts a year, maybe 180 depending upon the year. We review them for their topical content. Do they match up with what the goals are for the water conference? And you'll see that on the website. Does it cover a water subject or whether it's a technical way or an implementation way? We then review it from the author's perspective. Have they presented before or not? We do like first-time presenters. Are they supported as part of their being authored? Are they doing it with a collaborator? Are they collaborating with an owner? Again, we do like to have owners present at our conference because they have a wonderful perspective about how things operate. Then we look at what is the topic relative to an emerging topic that we're looking forward to. Because our view at the International Water Conference is we want to be ahead of the leading edge of what's happening in regulatory affairs. 12 years ago, it used to be flue gas desulfurization mercury removal, arsenic removal, managing boron, those kinds of things. That's less today, but PFAS is so much greater. Water reuse and recycling, and how are people doing this? Lots and lots of information is available through AWWA and WEF on gray water. That's great, but what about industrial, boiler cycling, whatever that may be? When we review those topics, we score them and we have this whole Pareto chart of scoring and, and we select the highest rated papers and then we look at what their categories are because, you know, we may have 25 beautiful papers in, in pure industrial wastewater treatment. Well, that's not going to be interesting to our audience. Our audience has lots of varied interests. So we want to have a breadth of knowledge across the, so we seek to cover the things that we've I've talked about, RO, ion exchange, power, industrial, trace metal removal, those kinds of things, it's because every one of those has a connectivity to our industry. And we want to bring folks that can come and learn about what they already know about and then 
why don't they walk across the hall and say, hey, I heard this and I don't know much about this. Because like a, a professor told me when I was in college a long time ago, he says, Michael, we will not teach you everything you need to know in four years. But what we will teach you is how to learn. So are there so many slots for PFOS, so many slots for a different category? So maybe if I now chose a category that's more obscure, it had a better chance of getting selected. Is there any technique to that? There is a technique to that. And I would encourage folks to, to go after those emerging topics. What we do seek is to not have any more than two sessions over that two and a half day period. A session has either three or four papers in it. And we don't want to have more than two sessions of a subject matter because we want to cover that breadth. So if you've got an interesting paper on something that's not highly published in terms of technical content, yes, please write it up. There seems to be a lot of interest right now in lithium uh, and how to deal with it, how to address it, how to recycle it. Yeah, it's a solid waste material, but it contacts water in every way, shape, or form. Chromium. We've got issues related to chromium. What are the constituent standards associated with that? These are emerging topic issues. And we have actually on the website as well a list of emerging topics. So those are the ones where we'll be looking for, for sure. Once you've selected an abstract and you notify the person that, yes, we are interested in you developing your presentation for the conference, what is the next step for them? The next step is for them to write the actual technical paper. And that is an important distinction for our conference versus other conferences. We require that a technical paper is published because we publish that as part of our conference proceedings. So technical paper, what does it have? It has an opening statement, a background statement. It has data. It has an analysis section. It has references, citations, prior work that might be included in now new work. So that's the next step to, to actually write the paper because the paper would be somewhere in the range of seven to 12 pages long, depending upon the amount of graphs that may go in it. Understanding that Let's start with the end in mind. If we are going to stand up and we're going to talk about a subject matter and we have 25 minutes to do so, we really have a rather narrow focus that you're going to write a, a technical paper about. It may take you seven or eight pages, maybe 12 pages to write it to show the data. But imagining that each one of those technical sections takes four minutes to, to actually analyze and six and a half or seven minutes to talk about the data itself, boom, you quickly fill up a 25-minute presentation. So that's how we encourage our authors to, to begin is what is the narrowly focused conversation that you want to have and information you want to present. And then, yes, you'll end up with a 12, 11, maybe 10 slide deck that will take up 25 minutes between even including entrance slides and, and closing slides. It just happens that way when you're trying to explain these technical subjects. Is there a view process before the paper is actually viewed with the public? There is, yes. So the full process is this. Author publishes a, a first draft of the paper to the session chair. The session chair and the executive committee person and potentially the discussion leader would read that, provide feedback whether that's grammatical format, gaps, things that don't make sense to the first reading. They'll send that uh, readability. Harvey, we have a fellow who had taught us how to really write a better paper. Um, anyway, they'll send back those comments to the author. The author will then adjust the paper to address the comments and send it back as final. Once that is done, then that final paper is the final paper. It's sent to the discusser, and then the discusser reviews it, provides a written reply, they call it their discussion, and it, we ask the discussers to really focus on you know, three to five key points in the paper, not to address every paragraph that's in the paper. The discusser then prepares a presentation so that the author knows what the discusser is going to say. And the professional relationship between the author and the discusser is that the author has to understand 
that while they know what the discusser is going to say, please don't address the discusser's comments as part of the paper presentation. So you can see how you know, an author might get their feelings hurt or they want to, to address something that's pointed out. But if we follow the letter of the law and we're trying to be transparent to both parties, then we ask the author to, this is what the, the discusser is going to say, because you get a rebuttal period. You get five minutes for addressing the discussers' comments. Please don't address them under the presentation of the paper. Just present the paper topic. And that's what makes it work because think about the consumer. Think about the participant in the conference. They've never read. They've never heard. They don't understand a lot until they first hear it. And so that's what we want to have them do is bring them into the conversation, into the thought. Have them gather that that thought up in the top of their head. Hear some challenge along the way that says, oh, I didn't think of that. Maybe that generated another question, just like you spoke. And then once with the author able to provide a professional reply, we didn't cover that because it wasn't part of the scope and we didn't have time to cover it in the paper, but the data is available, whatever it may be. Then the audience now says, oh, I heard it. I heard the challenge. I heard a reply, hmm, well, I have a different question because my first question was irrelevant relative to the, the paper. And that's the whole process. And it takes about 50 minutes, five zero minutes to go through that whole process uh, at the conference. Do you have to be a member of the IWC in order to present or attend a conference? No, not at all. It is open to anyone, anyone around the world. And then who would become a member and what are some benefits of being a member? Well, being a member would be on the advisory committee. And how you become a member of that is you make an application, contact uh, Dave Tiorski at the Engineering Society of Western Pennsylvania, reach out to me and we can get you signed up. It's really a volunteer organization. You got to pay just a, a little bit of a stipend to join the advisory committee. And we meet three times a year to talk about the items that are associated with the conference. So anyone can join as an advisory committee. Generally, they're company sponsors. Okay. So whether it's Pure Light or Veolia, whoever it may be, the company would send a representative. But Individuals, we have uh, sole proprietors who are consultants. They're members as well. So we're not restrictive. In addition to the papers, there's also an exhibition. Can you speak a little on that? Oh, yes. The the exhibition, I'm grinning because that's really a lot of fun. We've got 100 exhibit spaces, give or take, you know, whichever year in the venue that we're at. And the exhibitors have everything that you would imagine that would be at a technical conference. You've got your meter manufacturers, you've got your consultants, you've got product providers, you've got contractors. We have a booth there, have had for a very long time. But what makes that fun is the exhibitions are open between the technical sessions. So we're not competing with each other. So think about what we start with. We are an expertise-focused conference. The commercial side of it is a very important part. You have to have that in business. So middle of the day and in the afternoon, the exhibitors, wide open hall, you know, food and drink and the things that go with that, along with H2O Theater, that uh, anyone who wants to pay just a little bit of money, they can stand up and provide a commercial message because that's not part of the technical program. But the exhibition hall is a place where people truly gather and network and set meetings and discuss the things that they're working on. There has not been a conference in 14 years that I've been to the conference where there isn't a deal that I'm working on somewhere in the in the hall. It's just that neat because the people who are the deciders are there. It really is a great conference. I have not been to one in a while. I need to fix that. And I understand that you're very formulaic on when and where you have the conferences. So I went to one in Orlando and then it rotates through. Can you explain that? Sure. This year, it's uh, November 12th through the 16th in San Antonio, Texas, right on the Riverwalk. So if you've not been to San Antonio, it's a great place. If you've been to San Antonio, it's everything you can imagine. It's 
that river walk is is a neat neat location and that is a fun place to go in the middle of november before thanksgiving and it's always enjoyable from a weather perspective it does rotate from orlando san antonio and like i say we've been out in phoenix area in scottsdale and here's the prime motivation we are pragmatic in that to drag everyone from the west coast to orlando or everyone from the east coast to scottsdale it, it is a cost and time issue. Here's the other thing. We have owners and users who are across the entire nation, and we want them to be able to attend in the most convenient way possible. So when we go to these population areas, it's easy to get in. It's easy to get out. There's usually a university, so we can pull in that true educational component if the students so choose. But it's also a fun destination for no, in the month of November. And it's after a couple of the other conferences. You know, WEF is in September and IWEAs or uh, the WEAs are around the states are in different parts of, you know, the summers and the fall, early falls. So that's why we have November. But that's also why we rotated across the, the United States, because we want to make it easier to get to. So if you were just able to get one thought into our listeners' minds about the IWC, what do you want that thought to be? That thought would be the reason you want to attend is because you will learn something that you didn't know, confirm something that you probably know, and have a lot of fun connecting with the human beings, and they're getting their phone numbers so that when you run into an issue that's two years from now, you know, I know just the lady or gentleman to call who can lead me in the right direction. That's what I would ask them to know. Outstanding. I have no doubt that people are going to want to find out more information about the IWC. What's the best way for them to do that? Go to the website, search the website. If that becomes confusing or is incomplete, reach out to me. Look at the show notes. You can reach out to Dave Tiorski at the Engineering Society of Western Pennsylvania, again, on the website. Happy to direct you in any way, but that personal contact is very, very welcoming and, and probably helpful. Well, Mike, this has been very informative. I know this is a volunteer position for you. Probably don't get a lot of thank you. So I want to thank you for all the work that you and your co-members do to put on such an incredible conference. And then you going above and beyond by coming on this podcast and sharing all of those things with the Scaling Up Nation. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome, Trace. Very, very honored to be here. Well, Mike, thank you for coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. It's always great when we have people that are willing to share something that they do. And, you know, that's a volunteer position that Mike is doing with the IWC. And there's so many people out there that are volunteering with organizations, and these are all nonprofits, so they couldn't do what they do without all of the volunteers out there. So whenever we talk about all the events that are coming up, think about all the volunteers that are working within those organizations to make sure that you have something that you can get something out of. There's so much learning at all of these conferences. And of course, the IWC conference is taking place November 12th through 16th in San Antonio. So maybe you want to meet Mike. Maybe you want to learn more about the International Water Conference. We will, of course, have all of that information on our show notes page. And I also want to give a shout out to Jay Harwood and Jim Summerfield. So a few years ago, when this podcast was just getting started, they invited me to their conference, which was in Orlando at the time. I was their guest, and I interviewed Jim and Jay on episode 124. We were in the middle of the conference center, so you get to hear all the hustle and bustle that's there. But Nation, there are so many conferences out there. And trust me, if you're not going to conferences, I think you're missing a golden opportunity 
to learn because it's difficult to find all the information that we need to know about our industry so we can start to learn it. Then when we learn it, we can then apply it so we can actually know it. So a great way to start learning tons of information is to figure out a conference that you want to go to. Now, do you want to supercharge that learning experience? If you do, then volunteer with that organization. And when you volunteer, don't think I'm going to get all of this stuff and that's why I'm going to do it. You will never be happy that way. If you volunteer because you're going to meet some new people and that you are going to give to that organization, if you volunteer with that mindset, it will change everything. And I promise whatever you give will come back to you minimum tenfold. I volunteer with several organizations and that has been proven every time that I do that. So whatever the organization is, you can go to our events page and you can find all the things that are coming up. And if you want to get involved in any of those items, I know that they would love to have you. Here are a few things that are coming up that maybe you want to check out. And these are all outside of the United States. So the fourth Global Smart Water Summit is taking place May 25th through 26th in Berlin, Germany. So the focus of this is on smart water grids, best practices in water management, modern filtration, and water treatment techniques to include all the latest innovations. If this sounds like something you want to learn more about, you can go to scalinguph2o.com, go over to our events page, and we will have everything you need to know to make a reservation and put it into your calendar as well. In Darwin, Australia, the 21st International Symposium on Health-Related Water Microbiology is taking place. That's going to be June 4th through 9th. That's hosted by the International Water Association. This is a forum that exchanges scientific information with health-related professionals about water. If this is something that sounds interesting to you, and why wouldn't it? Infectious disease and water treatment all together under one roof to try to figure out how we make water safer for everyone. We're going to have information about that at scalinguph2o.com and navigate over to our event section. And then finally, the International Water Association is hosting their sixth annual international conference on eco-technologies for wastewater treatment. This is going to be in Spain, June 26th through 29th. This event aims to discuss the latest cutting-edge eco-technologies for a sustainable transition in wastewater treatment, reuse, and resource recovery. If this is the type of water treatment that you practice, maybe this is an event that you want to check out. For all of these events, including the International Water Conference and more, go to our events page and we will have all of that information for you. Something that's coming up that I want to talk about as well is the fact that the Rising Tide Mastermind is having our live event in just a few short weeks. Nation, we started the Rising Tide Mastermind with the idea that our job is hard that most people don't understand the issues that come up in industrial water treatment. And we wanted a forum where you could just get help with what was going on in your life, in your career, and you could just start there. You didn't have to back up and explain all the things somebody needed to know about your industry because people just don't get what it is that we do. Since that time, we have well over 60 members. We have six groups with a waiting list for group seven. And it's not just about technical. It is about life. What is going on in your life that you need help with? And Nation, you pick the topic. I promise we have talked about it. And the Rising Tide Mastermind members are better because they are part of a group. 
They have a group of people that care about them, that they care about, and the simple goal is how do we get each other further, faster, and have more fun at the same time? Well, that's the Rising Tide Mastermind. And each and every year we get together here in Atlanta, Georgia. A nation, we have members all over the world and we come right here to Atlanta, Georgia and we have an amazing three-day event. We have workshops. We normally have an assignment that we're using to build our professional skills. We have a lot of networking and a lot of group time. We have speakers come in. It is my favorite few days of the year. And it's because all these people are coming together and you get to see them in person. Normally, we're over virtual meetings. And those are great. We get a lot accomplished. But there's just something different when everybody comes together. And that's happening May 23rd through 25th. I cannot wait for that event so many listeners out there are Rising Tide Mastermind members, and I can't wait to see you here in Atlanta. And for those of you that are not a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind, well, maybe the Rising Tide Mastermind is not for you, and maybe there's another group out there. For some of you, maybe the Rising Tide Mastermind is exactly what you are looking for, and perhaps you should check it out. You can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind, and you can find out more about what the Rising Tide Mastermind is. And then if you want to dive deeper, you and I can get on a conversation to see if this is the right group for you. But I'm going to be honest, it's not the right group for everybody. So maybe there's another group out there. Now, since I lead the Rising Tide Mastermind, and I believe in the mastermind concept so much, I'm a member of another mastermind group called Iron Sharpens Iron. And Aaron Walker is the founder of Iron Sharpens Iron. In fact, he's been on this podcast twice, episode 184 and episode 248. We call him Big A. He's one of my mentors. And Nation, the simple fact is life is hard. And life throws some pretty hard stuff at us on a regular basis. And it is just difficult, especially when you're navigating through life alone. The whole thing about the Rising Tide Mastermind, Iron Sharpens Iron, or any mastermind is you're not alone anymore. And I tell you, when you're not alone and when people know more about you and they care instantly more about you because they know more about you, it is amazing how people will help each other up when they fall down. In fact, what normally happens is they catch you on the way down so you don't really fall and now it's more of a learning experience. And you realize that you've got all these people that have your back for the sole interest that they want you to get better. Remember, the entire mastermind concept is how do we support each other while getting support and making us all get further faster while we have more fun. One more time, just in case you did not get it, that's going to be scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind. Nation, I hope you find an event that you want to attend. And if you enjoy that event, it's my further hope that you find a committee or something that you can volunteer with for the two reasons that you want to give and you want to meet new people. And if you volunteer with those two things in mind, you will be amazed at what comes back to you. And for an extra twist, if you really want to have more fun at life, if you want to go further faster, then I urge you to look into the mastermind concept. Nation, thank you for listening to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, and I'll have a brand new episode for you next week of Scaling Up H2O.
Scum Nation, it's my hope that whatever you do in the industrial water treatment community, that you do it with excellence. And if you're in the same type of water treatment that I'm in, I do that by maintaining my certified water technologist designation. I know so many of you out there are studying for that prestigious certification, and I'm here to help. I've answered each one of the mock exam questions, letting you know the logic behind how questions are asked and also doing all the math to show you how to set things up so you can easily find the right answer and make sure you don't select one of those sneaky wrong answers. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep. Again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep to sign up today.